Hello, I'm Kate Chabot. Welcome to SITREP, your weekly look at the big issues in defence and world affairs. They marched on Moscow and were exiled as a result. Now the president of Belarus says Wagner mercenaries want an excursion to Poland. This kind of rhetoric can sometimes lead to a spiral in which junior figures think they have been given a nod and a wink to do something dangerous, even if that's not the intent. We'll also hear why MPs say Wagner is a threat to the UK that has been seriously underestimated by ministers. Also on SITREP, the Prime Minister and Defence Secretary apologised to veterans for their treatment when LGBT people were banned from serving. I was part of that army. I was determined I wanted to recognise that I had been part of that thinking and army that I deeply regret. And 70 years after the fighting ended, why are North and South Korea still technically at war? They tried to resolve this a couple of years ago, and there was a whole big sort of legal debate about, like, well, who exactly has got to sign it? Is it just the two Koreas? Because they don't recognize each other. Is it the UN? Is it the United States? Is it China? Right. I mean, I can see you smiling. I mean, it is. It's this real legal tangle. Sitrap with Kate Chabot. Well, Mike is away this week, but we start with a word he used here on SITREP on the day that Russia launched its full-scale invasion of Ukraine. Contagion. The risk that the fighting could spread and trigger all-out war across Europe between Russia and NATO, both armed with nuclear weapons. But what if NATO territory were to be compromised in a slightly different way? Not by official Russian troops, but instead by Russian mercenaries. The president of Belarus has suggested that's exactly what Wagner fighters, exiled in his country after their failed mutiny, would like to do. According to the Kremlin's English transcript, President Lukashenko told President Putin the Wagner mercenaries have started getting on our nerves. They are asking permission to go west. He goes on. They say on the sly, we will go for an excursion to Warsaw and Yeshov. The words have been branded irresponsible, but also downplayed by most Western commentators. However, Wagner's actions are also raising tension. They've been training Belarusian special forces just three miles from the Polish border. So Poland's moved extra forces to its border. And in turn, Russia is warning against attacking Belarus. Is this all just rhetoric or the start of an escalatory spiral? Well, let's talk to Mark Galliotti, whose numerous credits include more than 20 books about Russia, its military and politics. Mark, thank you so much for joining us. Um, how worried should we be? Not too worried. I mean, look, President Lukashenko of Belarus is in some ways one of the biggest trolls you can find on the world scene these days. He knows exactly what he's doing. And the other thing is that the Wagner Group is currently shorn of almost all of its heavy equipment. The, ministry, the Russian Ministry of Defence made damn sure that it took it back, the tanks, the artillery and so forth, before Wagner moved to Belarus. So it seems almost certain that this is just simply an attempt to get us to, to pay attention, get us to basically be worried. However, obviously, Prigozhin has proven in the past to be unpredictable. And also this kind of rhetoric can sometimes lead to a spiral in which junior figures think they have been given a nod and a wink to do something dangerous, even if that's not the intent. So it's absolutely right to keep our guard up. And I think Poland is, is doing the right thing by moving forces to the border. But we need to take this, keep this in context. 
And if Wagner mercenaries did try something, how would NATO respond? Would it treat it as a Kremlin action? I think it would. And I think it's interesting that you I know you're, you're going on to talk about the, the recent Foreign Affairs Select Committee report about Wagner, which basically makes it clear that although in the past Wagner has crossed back and forth across the boundary of being actually a proxy of the Kremlin and then at times being essentially an independent commercial organization, those days have passed. And these days, I think we, we now see Wagner very much as a simply a, another arm of the Russian state. Well, let's just take a step back. Can you just explain to us the scale and setup of the new Belarus branch of Wagner, or is it a new HQ that it's setting up there? Well, it's a new HQ in part precisely because it's old HQ, which was formerly on the basis of a Russian special forces camp at Molkino in southern Russia has been closed. Again, I think this is part of the the post-mutiny order, which is pushing Wagner out of Russia keeping it operative in Africa and now in Belarus, but not in in Russia itself. Now, in total, the claim is that Prigozhin can count on about 15,000 fighters. There's nowhere near 15,000 currently in Belarus. There's quite a lot of them are currently basically on on holiday after the, the very tough fighting in Bakhmut. And meanwhile, the Russian government is trying to woo as many as possible to join the regular military or join other mercenary organizations. So we don't know how many fighters actually Prigozhin will end up with. He's claiming he's going to hold on to all 15,000. The smart money is on less than 10,000. Still a significant force, but not the kind of force with which you invade NATO with. Well, the relationship between the Wagner leader and Moscow right now seems very unclear. Immediately after the mutiny, he seemed to have been banished to Belarus. Days later, he was back in Russia and meeting President Putin. But then we hear this from the CIA director, Bill Burns. Putin is someone who generally thinks that revenge is a dish best served cold. Putin is the ultimate apostle of payback. So I would be surprised if Prigozhin escapes further retribution. If I were Prigozhin, I wouldn't fire my food taster. So, Mark, what is your take? Should Prigozhin be using the services of a beef eater or are he and Putin secretly still mates? I don't think they're they're still mates anymore. Look, we know that Putin absolutely regards treason, personal betrayal as being the the worst sin of all. But at the same time, ultimately, he needs Prigozhin if he wants to keep Wagner operating in Africa. Because in Africa, Wagner is supporting a whole bunch of often, frankly, quite unsavory regimes. It's a moneymaker for Russia. But more importantly than that, for the Kremlin, it's actually an instrument of political influence at a time when, frankly, Russia has very, very little real influence around the world. And the thing is, Wagner and Africa, it's tied together by so many shady deals under the counter agreements, illicit financial flows, with Prigozhin being central to all of them. So you couldn't probably just simply put someone else in charge and expect it to run. So if the Kremlin wants Wagner still to be active in the global south, it has at least for the moment to put up with Prigozhin. But that doesn't mean forever. And what was President Lukashenko's motivation here? What does he get for Wagner leader and his fighters as sanctuary? More than anything else, what he gets is brownie points with, with Putin. Lukashenko, after all, for a long time, I mean, he used to be able to play off the West against Russia. Now, since he very brutally suppressed risings against clearly rigged elections in his own country, he's burnt his bridges with the West. So he's dependent upon Putin. But he doesn't want to become just simply a vassal. So, you know, he he pushes back when he can. 
And this sort of case, he basically says, look, I will do you a favor. But on the other hand, I will in, in return have a token I can play in the future. So, yes, it's handy to have Wagner training his troops and so forth. And if need be, use them against probably his own people. Because after all, you know, it's always handy to use foreigners if you're going to suppress your own masses. But more than anything else, I think this was him being able to say, I can do you a favour, but I will remember it. Mark Galliotti. And as he mentioned, Wagner's biggest area of operations is not Europe, but Africa. It is perhaps not surprising the UK is paying more attention to the mercenary group now its fighters are so close to British troops who are serving with NATO in Poland. But in a scathing report, a cross-party group of MPs has accused the government of having a dismal lack of understanding of Wagner's hold beyond Europe. They say Wagner has conducted operations in at least seven countries and interfered in 10 more. It was the move of Wagner's fighters into Mali that led to Britain's military withdrawal last year. The Commons Foreign Affairs Committee says ministers have underplayed and underestimated Wagner and the threat it poses to the UK. Alicia Kearns chairs the committee. So the Kremlin um, essentially operates the Wagner Group like it's their own private mafia. They go into these countries, they breed corruption, they support failing states to survive, and it is always at the cost of civilians, and they leave behind this enormous mass of atrocities behind them. But why does that pose a security risk to the UK? Well, these countries are operating where we see the greatest fragility. We know that fragility breeds recruitment for terrorist organisations, and we know that in particular they are choosing to operate in countries where there is rising terrorism. So across the Sahel, in certain parts of Africa, we know they worked hand-in-hand with the Assad regime, they worked with Hezbollah. These are not partners that we need to be bolstered or boosted by working with the Wagner Group, and there is a direct threat to the UK whether it's through illicit finance, whether it's through increased fragility, whether, for example, looking at Sudan, where we know that they played a role in the increased hostilities we're seeing on the ground. And it was the UK that had to bring back so many people who were at risk. And we were very fortunate that we didn't lose British nationals. Your evidence included testimony from a former senior Wagner fighter. What new information did you uncover from that and the other evidence in your inquiry? So the defector made very clear just how close the Kremlin and the Wagner network are, and that in essence, the Wagner network receives all of its logistics, whether it be literally down to uh, Russian military aircraft flying them into countries, whether it be tents, whether it be uniforms, all the way down to machine guns that they operate. They are Kremlin endorsed and supported, and they act as their geopolitical arm. We also learned about relationships between Hezbollah and Wagner. And we learned about the way in which other military proxies that are operate in Russia are connected to the Wagner group and also to the Kremlin. It was an incredibly helpful way to reveal just how significant the Wagner network is to the Kremlin. And is that Kremlin endorsed in spite of what has happened when Yevgeny Prokhorjian led his Wagner fighters on a march on the Kremlin? Absolutely. And what we have actually learned from the defector is really some more information about why that march on Moscow took place. So Prigozhin and Shoigu have historic enmity going back to Syria, where Shoigu wasn't happy with the approach that Prigozhin took towards it. Uh, That hostility has continued. And obviously, it became very public uh, with Prigozhin doing videos attacking Shoigu publicly. And Shoigu was who Prigozhin wanted to see removed from power. So we actually learned a great deal about that. 
The report has come at a time which is very timely because we're saying to the government, we have a real opportunity now, while the Wagner network is in greater disarray, to take action, to try and separate some states who are becoming reliant on them um, and to essentially work out how we cause problems for the Wagner networks. They cannot continue to cause the atrocities they are across the world. And why do you say the UK government has been, in your words, remarkably complacent about the rise of Wagner? So Wagner has been operating since at least 2014 around the world. And yet from the evidence we heard from ministers, A, they saw this as a European phenomenon. They weren't looking at Wagner in Central African Republic, where essentially they have taken control, where they're now exploiting the gold, the diamonds. Uh, They weren't looking at Mozambique, at Libya, in Sudan, all the other places that the Wagner network is operating. That is a core failing. Yes, we need to look at Wagner in Ukraine, but it is also operating elsewhere. It took six weeks for any government department to determine who would give evidence to us because there is no clear cross-government lead. The minister was very clean to downplay the group, and he couldn't even define the group for us. There was gross uh, lack of interest in the Wagner network, which is a real error in our view. And if we take the example of Mali, UK troops worked there for a decade trying to build stability and security there, but the military council running the country has now chosen to work with Wagner instead. There's only so much we can do, isn't there? Absolutely. And we know from the evidence from, again, the defector, that where Western countries withdrew from countries, Wagner Network would immediately go in because they see the most benefit for them in countries where Russian influence can be increased, where there are political vacuums, where there are natural resources to exploit and where Western countries have left. Wagner went in while British troops were still there. Are you saying we should have stayed alongside Wagner mercenaries or should we still have troops there? No, obviously, we cannot just stay no matter what. And the reality is that once Wagner on the ground, they will be doing everything in their power to drive out British troops, to drive out any uh, other force, because that is the only way in which they can go ahead and get the contracts they want, essentially have that state capture that they desire. Uh, It is incredibly difficult. And there will be times where, unfortunately, we cannot be uh, victorious, but we should at every opportunity be looking to drive out the Wagner network and make sure that they don't manage to capture countries, because once they do, eradicating them is going to be far, far harder. What's the answer here? What do you say the UK can and should do to minimise Wagner's influence and protect itself from that? Well, the first thing the government needs to do is prescribe the Wagner Group as a terrorist organisation. That is what they are. And it would send a clear signal to partner countries they should not be operated with. Secondly, we should be declassifying intelligence. And to be fair, a lot of it is actually open source at the moment that reveals that the Wagner network does not achieve its aims. It was brought into Mozambique to help defeat the Daesh problem in the north. It failed. It went running because it was defeated. Rwandan troops have now picked that up and have managed to push them back significantly. I want to see a cabinet office lead working across government to bring together intelligence We want to do sanctions and we want to look at the enablers, so the financial individuals, the lawyers, uh, the financial institutions that are supporting the Wagner network and propping them up. One of your recommendations is offering investment and security partnerships, including military aid, but that costs money and military effort, which are already heavily committed. It does, but we already do train and equip programs around the world. We need to continue to offer those, but we should focus very specifically on countries where we deem them currently to be fragile but at peace to make sure they do not descend into conflict, that the Wagner Group is not able to go in and exploit tensions and start stealing resources and create uh, instability. That is what I would be prioritising. Perhaps one of the more, more disturbing things is that Wagner is really taking hold now in Europe. 
Uh, how concerned are you about that? So the Wagner Group, as we know from the defector, actually emanates from Russia. That's where they were set up by the Russian MOD. But yes, of course, the atrocities in Ukraine are where they finally ended this denial that they are in any way associated with the Kremlin. And essentially, they've been working as the frontal attack group uh, with the main MOD forces operating behind them in Ukraine. And we've seen appalling atrocities being perpetrated. Now we see that in Belarus, they are supposedly saying they want to go into Poland. Well, this is clearly a nonsense. I do not think we're going to see Wagner troops going into Poland. Um, but this is all about the Belarusian president trying to reposition himself with Putin as having more authority. He will be seeking to make play with the fact that he now has Wagner troops based within his uh, within his territory. But the reality for me and the committee is that we think the majority of Wagner network assets and activities will continue to be not in Europe, but actually in Africa, particularly following the march on Moscow. Alicia Kearns, thank you very much. Thank you. BFBS. The Forces Station. Forces Station. Set Now, an apology from the Prime Minister. On behalf of the nation, to thousands of veterans, people who serve their country, up to the year 2000. The ban on LGBT people serving in our military until the year 2000 was an appalling failure of the British state, decades behind the law of this land. As today's report makes clear, In that period, many endured the most horrific sexual abuse and violence, homophobic bullying and harassment, all while bravely serving this country. Today, on behalf of the British state, I apologise. And I hope all those affected will be able to feel proud parts of the veteran community that has done so much to keep our country safe. The Prime Minister's apology came alongside a government-commissioned review which took testimony from more than 100 people dismissed from the forces for their sexuality. It found their statements give shocking evidence of a culture which included bullying, blackmail, sexual assaults, abusive investigations and disgraceful medical examinations with appalling consequences. Now those who suffered are promised compensation payments, clarification of pension rights and the restoration of medals stripped from them on discharge. With me is SITREP's James Wharton. We've told you before he's a veteran of the Household Cavalry. He's also the author of the book Out in the Army, My Life as a Gay Soldier. James, uh, thanks for joining us. We'll talk about your experiences in a bit, but you know many of the veterans who fought not just for this apology and compensation, but also back in the 90s fought to get the ban lifted. It looks like an incredible victory for them. A victory, yes, without a doubt, Kate. But gosh, it's been a long fight to get to this moment. As you say, the ban lifted in 2000. And since then, people like me gay men, uh, LGBT people, we've been able to serve in the armed forces. But sort of watching on from the sidelines is this considerably large group of LGBT veterans who have felt a great sense of injustice that while we've been able to do this, and I'm absolutely certain they don't begrudge that, of course they don't, they have been looking on and sort of saying, well, what about us? And I think that's what this report has set out to address. And this may sound like a a stupid question, but it's actually the heart of this. The rules were clear and legally binding at the time. So what is the Prime Minister actually apologising for? That is correct, yes. But in the year 2000, the law was ruled unlawful, that the act of Parliament that was causing these injustices was in itself wrong in the first place. However, 
That's not really what the Prime Minister has apologised for. The reason he stood up and given a, a very loud and clear apology on behalf of the British state is because of the manner in which that law was implemented and the misery it caused. And I think you can hear that in some of the testimonies of some of the veterans that I was lucky, well, quite frankly, honoured to meet last Wednesday outside Westminster, Tremaine Cornish, Carol Morgan and Kevin Baisley. My locker was uh, searched. I was sent for a medical examination and interrogated further as to who did what with whom and how. Uh, did I like wearing women's underwear? Offensive, just demeaning and humiliating. The examination from the doctor was to examine parts of me to see if they could find proof. Well, I was actually stationed at Woolwich. SIB came in and ransacked my room due to an allegation from a roommate. I was interrogated for six hours. Then I had to go and see a psychiatrist who all they were interested in was whether what I got up to in bed with my girlfriend at the time. Do you think there were investigators back then who revelled in the opportunity of investigating your alleged crimes? Yeah, they handled us like dogs. There's no two ways about it. Don't get me wrong, not all of them were, but the majority of them did. It was that humiliation as well of being walked off the aircraft, past all of my colleagues, them all wondering what's going on. Everything that I'd ever hoped and dreamed, all my aspirations career-wise, I just saw them all just disappearing in a puff of smoke. I've been vilified. I've been found unworthy. Um, I feel that it's some stolen valour from me. It's remarkable. And for me, the thing that really underlines that that incredible sort of element to the story is that we're not talking about an injustice that happened, you know, half a century ago. We're talking about something that happened relatively recently in the grand scheme of things. So Mm. incredible. Yeah, James. Now, this review, the Efton report, has clearly had a very powerful impact and actually a wider impact. A couple of MPs in the Commons spoke of their regret now at having voted against same-sex marriage as a result of what they'd learned through this process. Now, one of those was the Defence Secretary, Ben Wallace, and he also gave a very personal apology. The part of the report that talks about institutional homophobia is true. You read it. I was part of that army. I was determined to give this statement today rather than my excellent colleague because I wanted to recognise that I had been part of that thinking and army that I deeply regret. I mean, it's clear he has genuine contrition for the past, but also his role in it too. And and I thought it's impossible to be nothing but moved by the uh, Defence Secretary's words. I thought they were really powerful. And James, a practical question. Lord Etherton has 49 recommendations, many for restitution to make good where they can. What's actually going to happen and when? Well, one of the 49 recommendations has already happened, and and that was the apology itself. Um, I spoke to some of the veterans as close to an hour before that moment, and most of them didn't think that was going to happen. They, 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 were, they, were said, they were telling me that they would be really surprised if the Prime Minister actually stood up and did that. And, 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 and actually he did. The other recommendations we understand are all going to be accepted, but the government have said that in some of the instances there's a little bit of work that needs to be done. One of those being compensation. Who do you give compensation to? How much money do these individuals get on a case-by-case basis? And so some of the detail needs to be worked through and the government has promised to update at the end of the summer on the progress of those implementations.
And as you say, you were with some of those veterans um, for the publication of this report and the Prime Minister's apology. What did it mean to you as someone who joined the army just three years after the ban was lifted to be part of that moment with them? It was very special. Um, I think for a large part of my service, I came out as gay uh, at the age of 18. So I'd been in the army for two years at that point. That was 2005. So that's five years on from the law change. And it was quite clear to me that the environment, although on paper and and in a legal sense was okay and um, I was protected by being an LGBT person. It was very clear to me that the environment had not moved on at the same pace. But also what became more and more clear to me as my career progressed was these incredible people and individuals that had served prior to the ban that had set the groundwork and had brought about the change to allow people like me to serve. So it was very special, Kate. I, I, it wasn't lost on me. Mm. Um, it, was, it was an important day. So Lord Etherton notes the armed forces today are a very different environment. How much have they changed, do you think, for LGBT people? It must be really bizarre in some respects for some of these individuals like those that we just heard from to see LGBT people in the armed forces today being permitted to march in their uniform on annual occasions like Gay Pride in London. And I think that just gives you an idea in a, in a very simple sense of, of how things have changed almost night and day. They've gone from in 20 years in the space of two decades, literally criminalising LGBT people for being um, who they are in the armed forces to actively see, uh, seeking to celebrate them in such a public mm. way. So the change is significant. And, you know, one hopes there are LGBT people who are still to join the armed forces who, you know, may, may one day not even notice that um, this situation has a massive story behind it. But I do think we should always remember the efforts of those people who who fought for this moment, this apology, and, and paved the way for people like me to serve. James Wharton, great to speak to you. Thanks so much for your time. Finally this week, it's exactly 70 years since fighting ended in the Korean War. Nearly 60,000 British combat troops fought as part of a 22-nation coalition put together by the United Nations to support South Korea after an invasion by the Communist North. Although the three years of combat came to an end in 1953, the war did not. Technically, North and South Korea are still at war. Robert Kelly, a professor of political science at Pusan National University in South Korea, has been explaining how that came to be. Yeah, that's actually a great question. I mean, the war is still technically going on today. There's only an armistice. I think there are really sort of two issues going on. First is uh, the historical issue, which is to say at the time, none of the parties really actually agreed to the final terms. And it was basically that the military conflict was essentially a stalemate. Neither side had really surrendered its territorial ambitions. And so all parties were kind of frustrated, but none of them had actually really changed their beliefs about how they wanted the war to end. That's sort of the original problem. And then it just kind of dragged on and on and on the armistice. And it kind of it kind of grew into sort of like a like a status quo of its own, even though it's kind of like provisional and not really terribly worked out very well. It's actually turned out to be relatively stable. And so I think there's been sort of concern about, well, we don't want to rock the boat. Nobody really knows what's going to happen. Um, legally, it's a little iffy on how exactly it would be completed. And that's particularly because South Korea didn't sign the original armistice. And so there's some legal question because they tried to resolve this a couple of years ago. There was a South Korean president 
who wanted to set, to have a peace treaty. And there was a whole big sort of legal debate about like, well, who exactly has got to sign it? Is it just the two Koreas? Because they don't recognize each other. Is it the UN? Is it the United States? Is it China? Right. I mean, I can see you smiling. I mean, it is. It's this real legal tangle. I know it sounds ridiculous, but I think what's happened is the status quo has turned out to be good enough. It's not great. It's held. You know, it's been 70 years without a conflict. And so I think what's happened is that the, uh, like I said, the frustration, the stalemate of the war itself, just kind of, everybody has kind of accepted it and we've sort of moved on. And even though it's not technically a peace treaty, we all kind of treated it as if it is one. And here we are. So it's treated as a peace treaty, but North and South Korea are still technically at war. That is correct. Yeah, I mean, I would say in practice, it's basically treated as a as a peace treaty, right? I mean, the North Koreans and the South Koreans are not actively planning to like strike one another immediately or something like that, right? You know, it's not like you know Russia's build up against Ukraine, you know, before the war started a year and a half ago, right? And the North Koreans aren't making those kinds of moves. The South Koreans aren't either. The system is in place. It works reasonably well. It's not great. The North Koreans often don't pick up the phone. That's one of the biggest problems, actually. Um, but it's held, surprisingly, actually. I mean, I think if, if we rolled this conversation back 65 years, people would have said, oh, you know, we don't know what's going to happen, right? You know, Mao or Kim Il-sung, maybe they would launch a surprise attack. And there was some interest on the South Korea, on the North Korean side in fighting the war again in the 70s after the American defeat in Vietnam. But other than that, there's not really much evidence that either Korea actually wants to go back into uh, a full-scale war, right? They haven't given up their ambitions, but they don't want to pay the costs. And Robert, with, with hindsight, was it a mistake by South Korea not to sign up to that armistice at that point? Would things be better today if they had? Probably, probably. I mean, I, I'm, I'm sort of I'm a bit of a hawk on North Korea, which is to say that I actually think it's good that South Korea insists that North Korea is still an illegitimate entity. I would like to see North Korea eventually disappear because of the way it treats its own people. It's the most brutal state on the planet. It really, is in terms of human rights, it's like below. Afghanistan, you know, run by the Taliban. It really is bad. I mean, North Korea is the worst of the worst. And so the idea that South Korea has a legitimate claim to govern the entire peninsula, I would argue from a human rights point of view, is actually sort of a good thing. But if your goal is primarily stability, then, yeah, I think a peace treaty would be would be better. And I think I think, yeah, I think you're basically right. I think there's a general consensus out there that there should have been a treaty. And then the South Koreans kind of missed that chance. Now we're stuck with this weird architecture. And when you look at the world today, are there any lessons for Ukraine that might be wise to take from the Korean War? Were it to get to the point of a potential peace offer, but not on the terms it wants? Well, that's a really good question. Um, I think the big, the, I think there are two sort of big lessons I think from from the war for the from for Ukraine. The first is that if they don't win, which is to say, if they don't score a strategic victory that drives the Russians out of their territory completely. Um, this thing will turn into a frozen conflict like you have in Korea or in Georgia, and it'll sort of go on and on and on. I think that's a really core lesson from Korea, right? The second thing I think the Korea case tells us about Ukraine is the importance of nuclear weapons. The Russians would not have attacked Ukraine if Ukraine had nuclear weapons, in part because you can see the Americans are not going to attack North Korea because it has nuclear weapons. Nuclear weapons have dramatically changed the face of conflict. And I think that there will, you know, if NATO, one of the reasons why I think there's this push on our side in the West to bring Ukraine into NATO is because if Ukraine doesn't feel like it's in NATO and the Russians still maintain their ambitions, I think there's going to be a discussion in Ukraine to build nuclear weapons, right? Either you, we get NATO security guarantees, so we're not going to get eaten up by the Russians again in five years, or you're going to force us to do it. And Russia's really big, we're really small, we have to get nukes, because that's exactly what the North Koreans have done, right? I mean, the North Koreans 
said basically about 25 years ago in the 1990s, the North Koreans were like, there's no way we can resist the United States. The Soviets are gone and we have to nuke up. And that was strategically a pretty smart move. And is there any hope of North and South Korea ending their biggest differences or is this going to be a never ending war? It's going to go on for a while. Um, The only way that this thing could really change is if you have a Gorbachev figure in North Korea. I mean, Gorbachev was a liberal by Soviet standards. And there was some hope that the new Kim, this current Kim, when he took over in 2012, there was some hope that he might actually be this kind of Gorbachev figure. I remember this. There was like like eight months of optimism. You know, he went to school in Switzerland. Remember that? You know, yeah, he went to school in Switzerland and he likes Dennis Rodman and he likes basketball. And maybe, he impersonated you know, Elvis as well, didn't he? Right. <laughs> you know, so there was this hope, but that just didn't, you know, be other than that, I mean, I you know, I suppose the South Koreans could surrender, but I mean, I that would that's that's impossible to see. Um, you know, I think there's some on the left in South Korea that would like a more dovish policy towards North Korea, but there's a substantial number of South Koreans, conservatives, hawks, whatever you want to call them, who would implacably oppose any kind of move by South Korea to seriously accommodate North Korea. And so I think the the, the standoff is fairly stable until until the North Koreans liberalize a little bit. When I say that, I don't mean that North Korea will go from being like a totalitarian state to being something like Canada. What will probably happen is it'll go from being totalitarian to authoritarian, right? It'll go from being run by ideologues around the Kims to run by a bunch of generals. I mean, it's still bad, but morally, it would actually be a major improvement in North Korea if it was run by the military as opposed to the the Kim family. And I think that's, that's probably our best chance for change. It's quite a thought. Thank you so much for your time today, Professor Robert Kelly. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And that's all for now. My thanks to all of our guests. Professor Michael Clark will be back for next Thursday's SITREP, joined by Simon Newton. If summer holidays are about to break your routine, remember you can listen to us whenever you want at bfps.com slash SITREP or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and you'll never miss an episode. I'll speak to you again in a few weeks. For now, though, from me, Kate Chabot, thank you for listening. Bye-bye. 